This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For more than 150 years, the story of a common man from the Smoky Mountains has captured our imaginations and inspired us to celebrate his image in song, story, and cinema. This is the story of one of America's best-known and most recognized folk heroes. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, to tell us the real story of Davy Crockett. One of the truly iconic figures of the American frontier is David Crockett. He was a legend in his own lifetime. Now, he certainly had tales spun about him that were hyperbolic or entirely fictional. But that was only because his real-life rise from backwoodsman to congressman and his extraordinary adventures were heroic and quintessentially American. He stood as a symbol of the new American, the man of the West, and the future of the new republic. He lived at the dawn of the age called Manifest Destiny, the time of an expanding America that is moving west. Crockett is born just 10 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a log cabin in Greene County, Tennessee, on August 17, 1786. Davy Crockett is a third-generation frontiersman and becomes the fifth of John and Rebecca Crockett's nine children. Davy's father, John, is one of the famous over-mountain men who fights in the pivotal American victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. But while he is away fighting during the American Revolution, John's parents are slaughtered by Cherokee, who ally themselves with the British to take advantage of the war to raid and pillage. One of John's brothers is badly wounded in the attack and left for dead, and another is taken captive by the Cherokee and made a slave for 17 years. Now, born into this rugged, patriotic environment of pioneering mountain folk, Davy learns marksmanship at a young age, both for hunting and for protection against marauding Indians. Here's Crockett biographer Buddy Levy. Crockett came from a tradition of woodsmen, and he would have learned from his father and his uncles how to hunt. He learned how to track. He learned how to identify sign, scat, broken twigs. He also learned rough and tumble fighting from his older brothers. Here's historians Stephen Harden and David Eisenbach. Crockett's a jokester. He's remarkably funny. And he's affable. People like him. Being about six or seven by the creek, running into another bar. Well, Tennessee at the time was still the American frontier. You got wild animals, you got fights, and it was in this world where there's no kind of solid established law that David Crockett, you know, begins the process of becoming the myth. By the time Davy is 12, his father bounds him out to a perfect stranger to travel 400 miles on foot in a cattle drive to the eastern seaboard with no arrangements for his eventual return home. Three months of intensive labor pass before Davy travels alone in snow and on foot back to his mountain home where his family runs a tavern. But Davy is in for a surprise. His parents decide he will benefit from formal schooling. He isn't thrilled with confinement in a classroom, but his father is paying for it 
So Davy accepts the inevitable. I went four days and had just begun to learn my letters a little when I had an unfortunate falling out with a boy much larger and older than myself, Davy Crockett. Davy begins playing hooky from school, but after a week, the schoolmaster contacts John Crockett. Davy now thinks he'll be whipped by both the schoolmaster and his own father. My father told me he would whip me if I didn't start immediately to the school. Finding me rather too slow about starting, he gathered about a two-year-old hickory stick and broke after me. I put out with all my might, and soon we were both up to our top speed. But mind me, not on the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get as far the other way as possible. Davy Crockett, 1834. Davy doesn't stop running, and is soon on another cattle drive to the eastern seaboard. For the next two years, he has more adventures than most people have in a lifetime. Davy returns home just shy of his 15th birthday. Here's Crockett historians Gary Foreman and Paul Hutton. David has well reached the age of puberty, and his growth is enormous. He has grown several inches. He's changed his, his uh, features, and he is now a young man. He's no longer the little boy that ran away from home. When Davy got back to the tavern, it was nighttime, and the evening meal was being served to the herders and teamsters. He moved unannounced into the tavern and sat down amidst the other men. I had been gone so long and had grown so much that the family did not at first know me. And another, and perhaps a stronger reason was, they had no thought or expectation of me, for they had all long given me up for finally lost. Davy Crockett. So he got inside the tavern, sat amongst the other travelers at the same table with the family. Finally, one of his sisters looked at him, recognized his features, and discovered she has just found her long-lost brother, David. For dear life is constant struggle, and the family farm bankrupts the Crockett's. In order to pay his debts, Davy's father is forced to make a difficult decision. Well, here's my boy. His name is David. Shake his hand, boy. Here's criminology professor Arnett Gaston and Stephen Harden. Davy Crockett becomes what is known as a bound boy. It's really a form of indentured service to pay off a debt. It was slightly above being a slave. This had a significant impact on Crockett. We shouldn't, as modern people, judge John Crockett too harshly. The role of children in the early 19th century was vastly different than it is now. Indeed, and when we come back, more of the remarkable life of David Crockett here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Davy Crockett paying off his father's debts by becoming an indentured servant. Let's pick up from there. After a year of grueling work, paying off his father's debts to Abraham Wilson and John Kennedy, Davy does something for himself. He understands he needs at least the rudiments of an education. And coincidentally, Kennedy's son runs a school. Davy strikes a deal. He works for the son two days a week in return for four days a week of schooling for six months. That's the only education uh, Crockett ever had. But in that time, he says, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, and I learned how to cipher. With just six months of formal schooling, young Crockett's real education comes from the frontier itself. It's time for you to come on there. It's a rite of passage, a tool men use to provide and protect, a symbol of independence and freedom. One Crockett grows to cherish. His skill with his rifle becomes his trademark. Crockett begins entering shooting matches and impresses all those present with his marksmanship. At 17, he and his flintlock long rifle, he names Old Betsy, often outshoot all the men, winning a steer or hog as grand prize. He also begins hunting professionally, bringing game, especially bear and deer, to local towns and selling them for their hides and meat. But Crockett is not only driven by profit, he is also a man of charity. Here's Crockett's biographer, William Groneman. He was intensely loyal. When he was out hunting, he would always share the meat of his hunts with neighbors or people in need. His reputation begins to grow, but evidently not enough to win himself a girl. Now Davy tried to make his own way. And he was consumed, as young men often are, with thoughts of finding a wife. He courted a young lady named Margaret Elder and took out a marriage license but she jilted him at the altar and broke his heart. Then at a dance in 186, he meets the beautiful Mary Polly Finley. He courts her for several months and they fall in love. Polly's mother is initially impressed by the young man, but soon is trying to dissuade her daughter from marrying him. This David Crockett is recklessly adventurous. Polly deserves a settled man with property becomes a battle between Crockett and Mrs. Finley. Finally, Davy simply rides up to the Finley house with a wedding party consisting of relatives, friends, and a minister in tow, and says he has come for Polly. William Finley convinces his wife to step outside and talk with Crockett. She surprises everyone by apologizing to her daughter's suitor for the way she has treated him and invites the wedding party into the Finley home. The two are married. Davy is turning 20 and Polly is 18. Crockett feels blessed. As he puts it, he has his own horse and his own rifle and now his own wife. Says Crockett, I needed nothing more in the whole world. Crockett rents property near the Finleys and goes to work establishing a farm. Children come quickly. A son in 1807, another son in 1809, and a daughter in 1812. 
By the time his daughter is born, the family has moved farther west twice, and Crockett becomes a landowner rather than a renter. Here's Crockett from his 1834 autobiography. I found that farming wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was therefore more necessary that I should hunt to get along. David is not only esteemed among the other hunters of the region, he's putting money in his pocket and food on the table. In 1812, war with Britain erupts again, and the Trans-Appalachian country is in the thick of it, not fighting British troops, but fighting their Indian allies. The Creeks are especially troublesome. The majority of them support the British and become known as the Red Sticks. A minority, the White Sticks, support the Americans. Receiving arms, trading goods, and occasionally military advisors from the British, the Red Stick Creeks begin raiding outlying American settlements. The Creek attack that caused Crockett and other Tennessee boys to volunteer for service occurs on August 30th, 1813 at Fort Mims, about 40 miles north of today's Mobile, Alabama. So-called fort was not much more than a palisade of logs around the homestead of Samuel Mims. With the Red Stick Creeks on the warpath, American settlers and peaceful Indians crowd into the fort for protection. By late August, the number of people inside the fort reaches 500, militiamen accounting for about half. At noon, on the 30th of August, upwards of a thousand Creek warriors assault the fort and finally set it ablaze, where everyone inside is forced to flee into the open. The Creeks grab small children by the ankles and swinging them through the air, dash out their brains on logs. Men, women, and children are scalped and dismembered. Pregnant women have their bellies split open and their fetuses ripped out, said one witness. The fearful shrieks of women and children put to death in ways as horrible as Indian barbarity could invent could be heard a half mile off. About three dozen Americans escape, some mortally wounded. Their descriptions of what the Creeks have done reverberate across the frontier. Remember Fort Mims becomes a rallying cry. Tennessee legislature authorizes the raising of an army of militiamen. Andrew Jackson is named the army's commander. At the time, Jackson is recovering from a severe wound suffered in a duel. Though he is too weak to get up from his bed, he accepts the appointment, saying he'll have an army on the march in nine days. He immediately issues a call for Tennesseans to volunteer for duty. Although Polly cries and begs David to stay home, he is one of the first to answer Jackson's call. Here's Crockett from his autobiography and Stephen Harden. If every man waited for his wife to be willing for him to go to war, we'd all be killed in our homes. These are the people who murdered his grandparents. These are the people who forced Crockett to leave a loving wife and family. Now we have David Crockett, the, the soldier, for the first time in his life. When Crockett joined the militia, 
He was perfect to chase rogue creeks and got to observe how they move through landscape. It was something that he, in fact, emulated. As the army moved southward, Crockett is put in command of a small party of men and is sent out on a scouting mission to find the Creek Indians. Among the volunteers, Davy is very popular. He is known to be honest. One man's account called David the merriest of the merry, keeping the camp alive with his jokes and stories. During the harsh winter, David spends his own money to buy blankets for the soldiers. In just two weeks, Crockett finds them, penetrating deep into Creek country. This gives Jackson all the information he needs to attack. Split the men into two columns. We'll arrive here before the sun arises. Cross the river at the low point here and here. Yes, sir. In the early morning hours on November 3, 1813, Crockett and 900 other Tennessee militia, under the immediate command of John Coffey, race ahead and surround the Creek village of Tallaloosahatchee. There are dozens of cabins there, with more than 200 well-armed Creek warriors in them. Coffee has his volunteers encircle the village and then sends a portion of his force in a feint at the center cabins. The trap works, and the Red Stick Creek warriors are all killed, while 84 women and children are taken prisoner. One of the children, a 10-month-old boy orphaned by the fight, is about to be killed by squaws when the troops intervene. He is carried to Andrew Jackson, who takes him into his tent and coaxes him to drink a mixture of brown sugar and water. The boy becomes Andrew Jackson, Jr. A week later, at Talladega, Crockett is in even a bigger battle when a thousand Creek warriors come rushing out of the woods. The warriors came yelling on and continued till they were within shot of us, and we fired and killed a considerable number of them. They broke and ran across our line where they were fired on. And so we kept them running under heavy fire until we had killed upwards of 400 of them. Davy Crockett. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett here on Our American Stories. And when we last left off with Davy Crockett and the Tennessee militia battling against the British-backed Red Stick Creek Warriors, who was in the War of 1812, let's continue with this story. The War of 1812 is over in March of 1815, after a treaty is signed recognizing a military stalemate. Crockett returns to his family and home in the backwoods of Tennessee, but his bliss is short-lived. No sooner had he returned home than Polly died. She had been fine after the birth of their third child, Margaret, but she soon took ill and passed on rapidly. Davy was devastated. Death entered my humble cottage 
and tore from my children an affectionate and good mother and took from me a tender and loving wife. Crockett forges on as a widower and a year later marries Elizabeth Patton, a widow with two small children of her own. She lost her husband in the Creek War. Crockett will father three children with her. He moves west again in 1817 to Lawrence County, Tennessee. And at the same time, he began his political career. First as magistrate, later as colonel of the local militia regiment, thus the title Colonel Crockett. And soon he began to think about running for the state legislature. Crockett's reputation as a frontiersman and soldier make him a standout candidate. He becomes the voice of laborers, tradesmen, pioneers, and farmers, those building America into the powerhouse it's becoming. His campaign style is simple, one that involves whiskey drinking and laughable storytelling. It's hot as blazes out here. I bet you all are thirsty. We need to wet our whistle. Here's his historian, David Eisenbach. I hope I get your vote. You got my vote, sir. Yes, sir. Good. David Crockett was a politician. The frontiersman was part of his image-making campaign in order to get elected uh, to a population that did not want to hear from uh, the old-time politicians. When Crockett's elected to the United States Congress, he arrives in Washington and still takes the floor of the House pretty much dressed in his buckskins. In 1821, he's elected to the Tennessee General Assembly and re-elected in 1823. He's elected in a landslide to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826 and re-elected in 1828. David Crockett looms huge in the notion of what the American frontier was. He became a symbol of possibility, of hope, that the common man could actually rise to great heights. A man with six months education ends up in the halls of Congress. It's a uniquely American story. Andrew Jackson becomes president in 1829. And the year after, he signs the Indian Removal Act, which Crockett, to Jackson's dismay, opposes. With Crockett running for re-election, Jackson backs his opponent, William Fitzgerald, who immediately begins running a smear campaign against Crockett's character. At a campaign stop in northwest Tennessee, Crockett confronts Fitzgerald. Forget Davy Crockett. I will give you the real voice of Tennessee in Washington. When Crockett and Fitzgerald arrived for one of their co-stump speeches, Crockett stood up and strode toward the stage and said, you know, if you continue with these casting aspersions, I'm going to give you a country caning. Fitzgerald leveled a pistol at Crockett's chest and said, take one more step and it'll be your last. I suggest you leave. In addition to his moral flaws, it would appear that Mr. Crockett is not quite as tough as he claims. 
The event with William Fitzgerald and the pistol was devastating to Crockett. He had run part of his campaign on his courage, and here he was publicly slinking away in front of someone. It was kind of an assault to his manhood. After a brutal campaign, Crockett loses a stunning upset in his re-election bid in 1830. When Crockett lost his bid for Congress, he sort of slunk home with his tail between his legs. He was now broke, arriving to find out that his, his wife had also left him and he was living alone. It was a very low, low point in his life. That is until a play opens on April 25th, 1831 in New York City. One of the things that revitalized Crockett and his career was the creation of this play called The Lion of the West, which was clearly uh, a depiction of Crockett. At the beginning, Crockett was sort of offended by this. He felt like he was being made fun of, but as it turned out, the play actually made him an international celebrity. When Crockett loses his election bid for a fourth term in 1834, he starts thinking about moving to the Mexican-held territory of Texas. Pioneers looking for cheap land stream across modern-day Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas into a new frontier full of opportunity. By 1836, 30,000 Americans have moved to Texas. Davy Crockett is one of them. By the time the 49-year-old Crockett reaches Memphis, some 30 like-minded friends have joined him. The night before they cross the Mississippi, a celebration is held in his honor. Bar hopping finally takes the revelers to Neil McCool's. They hoist a whiskey-filled Crockett up on a counter. He stands up, surveys the crowd, and says, You may all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Here's historian Donald Frazier. The Texians were essentially the Anglo settlers in Mexican Texas. They'd started coming in in the last days of the Spanish regime and the first days of the new Mexican Republic. These guys were coming to Texas in order to make Texas into a new America. Like the United States, Mexico is a new country. It has recently won independence from Spain. One of the heroes of Mexico's war against Spain is General Santa Ana. He is now elected the Mexican president. Bit by bit, the ruthless Santa Ana, who promotes himself as the Napoleon of the West, seizes more power. He raises taxes, takes away freedoms. Now the angry Texians are calling for revolution. They want independence from Mexico. In response, Santa Ana sends 500 troops to confiscate weapons from the Americans. When the Texans refuse to surrender their guns, Santa Ana makes plans to retaliate. What began as a fresh start in Texas is now a call to arms. Sam. I'd be happy and honored to fight for the future of the Republic of Texas. Commander of the Texian Army, General Sam Houston, 
dispatches Crockett and his companions to a garrison where the Texian soldiers recently expelled Mexican troops, seizing control of the former Spanish mission, now a military fortress called the Alamo, located in San Antonio. They arrive at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett. And there aren't many like this in American history. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. we continue with the story of Davy Crockett and let's pick up where we last left off with the arrival of Davy and his fellow soldiers at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. You all halt right there and state your business. With volunteers from the United States here to fight for the Republic of Texas. Open the gates up. William Travis, who is in command of the Texas regulars, gets word of an advancing Mexican army. Santana advances north. Here's Crockett from his autobiography. Take note. When this war is won and Texas has achieved her independence, these people are going to need a strong leader. And I intend to give them what they need. On February 22nd, the San Antonians celebrate George Washington's birthday, dancing and eating tamales and enchiladas. What Crockett and those stationed inside the walls of the Alamo, including numerous women and children, don't know is that an enraged Santa Ana and his army of nearly 2,000 soldiers will arrive the following day and surround the Alamo. If you're going to teach these Texans a lesson, you need to teach them that lesson at the Alamo. So the first thing he does is try to scare them. Raises a black flag of no quarter. The black flag means? None of you will be spared. And he sets his guns up in strategic position to begin bombarding the Alamo. Several different times during the siege, the sharp shooting of Crockett and his Tennesseans are instrumental in driving back the Mexicans. Crockett is living up to his reputation. What people need to understand about the Battle of the Alamo is that it is a siege. And this battle lasted 13 days. After one of the battles, William Travis writes, The Honorable David Crockett was seen at all points animating the men to do their duty. Colonel William Travis, 1836. March 5th. 1836. Starving, sleep-deprived, and outnumbered more than 10 to 1, Davy Crockett and some 190 Texians refused to surrender and prepared a fight to the death. Here's the author of Lone Survivor, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. Man, there's a thing that happens when death's at the door. Most people don't know when the Reaper's going to show up, right? You just kind of... Hopefully you, you die in peace or you die quickly. 
when you see the Reaper standing outside the door and you know he's coming in here for us, your world just kind of lends perspective in that moment. What was important, what's not important, who I wish I would have talked to. Man, it's a hell of a thing to, to go through that. Santa Ana is relentless, accepting heavy losses to breach the fortress. On the morning of March 6, he launches a massive assault. So he was willing to send a political message both to the United States and to the people of Mexico using the blood of his men as the ink for this missive. According to Susanna Dickinson, who was there throughout the siege and is one of the non-combatants crowded into the Alamos chapel, Crockett steps into the chapel and says a prayer before joining his Tennesseans defending the south wall. Crockett and all the Tennessee boys fire their rifles until out of ammunition and then use those rifles as clubs. Here's retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Davy Crockett did what many American patriots have done, and that is decide to stay and fight for a cause in the face of an attacking enemy. And it speaks volumes about him uh, and about his character. After 90 minutes of furious fighting, it's over. The Mexican army takes the Alamo. All of the fort's defenders are killed. As we passed through the enclosed ground in front of the church, I saw heaps of dead and dying. 182 Texans and 1,600 Mexicans were killed. I recognized Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barrack building, and even remember seeing his peculiar cap lying by his side. Susanna Dickerson, Alamo Survival, 1836. There are approximately 25 different accounts of how Crockett died at the Alamo. There's no way to know because there are no credible witnesses to it. All I can tell you is Crockett became a Texas icon by dying here. He was actually only in Texas two months before he met his death at the Alamo. From the smoking ruins of the Alamo, the nation will soon learn that Davy Crockett gave his life defending Texas and the American dream. General Sam Houston calls on Texans to avenge Crockett's death and remember the Alamo becomes their rallying cry. Hundreds of angry Texans are drawn to the cause of independence. In a little over a month, on April 21, 1836, Sam Houston and his troops defeat Mexican forces and capture Santa Ana, gaining their independence. Nine years later, Texas will become the 28th U.S. state. Davy Crockett may well have perished at the Alamo, but the Crockett of legend has just begun. The Crockett legend easily transfers from stage to motion pictures, where he is always featured as the hero and always in a coonskin cap. On the night of December 15, 1954, America's first ever television miniseries begins airing on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. 40 million people, almost one-fourth of all American television sets, glow with a black and white image 
of a young Texan named Fess Parker, starring as Davy Crockett on ABC. And now, Walt Disney. It's characteristic of American folklore that most of our favorite legends and fables are based on the lives of real men, like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. And the show's theme song, A Ballad of Davy Crockett, becomes number one on the music charts for months. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Walt Disney creates a new series called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. It's positioned perfectly because America is still in the post-war era. Uh, it believes strongly in patriotism. And along comes Davy Crockett, another effort to re rekindle the light of the hero that people have forgotten for many, so many years. And it's with this timing that Crockett emerges again as a monumental hero in America's past. And he does it in such a way that he captures the imagination of a whole television crowd that remembers him as, as coonskin caps and uh, a host of other kitsch in pop culture. In America, the Crockett craze certainly took off with the first episode. Well, everyone was really taken aback and unaware. Uh, they didn't have any marketing ready like they would today. It was just something that had to be developed after the fact. But quite soon we had little boys and girls running around in coonskin caps and full buckskins, uh, rifle trying to hunt bear just like Davy Crockett did, trying to talk like Fess Parker did. But others made do with imagination and a good stick. And they played out the Battle of the Alamo in backyards all across America. Of course, more often than not, Davy Crockett won his last battle because historical fact was pretty irrelevant to toddlers in America. Davy Crockett has had a remarkable afterlife, growing to proportions that no one at the time of his death could have ever imagined. New Crockett's have been created, meeting the needs of new generations of Americans. And I think it's safe to say that Davy Crockett will always live in the American heart, at least so long as Americans cherish decency and freedom. And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes. We're lucky to have him. We're honored to have him. What a professor he was for so many years out on the West Coast, any students lucky enough to have studied under him, and Greg Hengler did, well, they'll be happy to hear his voice on our national show telling stories about this country. Cal State, Northridge, UCLA, Pepperdine, that's where Dr. Roger McGrath taught. And again, we've all had those teachers who brought history to life, and they're a blessing, and we need more of them now than ever here in this great country. This is Lee Habib, Davy Crockett's story, the story of the American frontier here on Our American Stories. Fought single-handed through the Indian War Till the creeks was whipped and peace was in store And while he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett The man who don't know fear 
went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so I heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, seeing his duty clear. When he come home, his politicking was done. Why, the Western March had just begun. So he packed his gear and his trusty gun and lit out a grinning to follow the sun. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face and he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was will, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or you know and and i could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made i think that was on january something it was mid-january um and we basically said if you have hate or uh racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing, you, you know, the post you just did, is going viral, and she thought, she was like, how did I get a virus? You know, like, she didn't even know what viral was. So they needed some help. Once that happened, 
I'd say, you know, we probably got 1,000 inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that, that there was a need, and we started Redemption, Inc. Um, we had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption, Inc., because it was it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and um, it just and, and then that took off actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You service? know, I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that that much I can definitely say. You know how they're feeling or. Like a lot of them are, are are scared because number one they're they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me, and a few of them even travel from far away. So far, so and by the way, so far I've helped personally helped twenty two people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're at first they're a little scared, but then once I get them, you know, in my chair. I talk to them like people, and, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were, I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves they need to either, most of them join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. It, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and, you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-some years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess, and so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody, and so, you know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I Like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable. And, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story 
here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air when we come back more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs or even racist people, they're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true, you know, blood in, blood out. Like A lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like, Like, we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but we make sure that Hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's a, a, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or I, I, it, it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, <laughs> you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made mistakes more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same, and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody, and, um, 
you know, of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them, you know, if they want to tell me, then they can, but we don't, I don't make anybody say anything, you know, because they've already been judged enough. I have so far seen a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on and, and you know, they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms and one of the kids, Brandon, that I tattooed, he's engaged now and getting ready to get married and, and you know, he, uh, he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo. It was really fun. He, he traveled a little bit to uh, come see us, but he was extremely... Actually, I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice, and, and you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he, he explained how he felt the shame of, of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, and, and again... Who wants to be a victim? And these people are truly making attempts to change. But, unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and and, um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that, you know... They're about moving on and and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, It just, wow. (laughs) Like even the, the stuff going viral and then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because you know not everybody the sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody there's always going to be somebody that says hey that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help it's sad that that these people believe them i didn't want to see those things so i had to separate myself from it it's kind of sad you know in my mind forgiving somebody is is more important you know and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions, that it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it, it kind of it gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, uh, like, these people... These people, they, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, the, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles, let's just say that. I'm comfortable with that. 
<laughs> I help them remove obstacles. They, I, I believe that the people that, uh, and I truly, really believe that, that they've already done what they needed to do. I didn't help them change. They did it themselves. I, I've tried to stay as humble as I possibly can. Like, you know, I have had people come up to me and, you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face, but like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I got picked to be that guy that, is, so to speak, helping people and, and when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually, yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state. Like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in, in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be give them a good service. So we actually look, look at their websites, look at their work, and, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption Inc. Whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave... And help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates. My goodness, you got to choose sometimes. Not in a gang, you're going to get beat. You got to pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemptioninc, and that's I-N-K.org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America. The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse. In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, by the name of Forrest Finn, hid a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much. Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I, I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I was, I was tired. After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high-end forgeries of famous paintings. I had no education. I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting, knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, and so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else. And it started working for for me, and and I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. Every time I I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. Then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it, it took me two years before I could... Uh, finance my gallery out of accounts receivable. In 1988, Finn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find. They gave me a one in five chance of living three years. And a lot of things were happening about that time. I was selling my gallery in Santa Fe and and I had a, a lot of clients that were coming to see me to to do different things, and it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. He didn't know that I had cancer, but we were standing in my in my library, and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sioux Indian bonnet with white ermine hang, skins hanging on it and split antelope horns, and it was a wonderful thing, and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> and, and we laughed and changed the subject. But that night I started thinking about that. Who says I can't take it with me? Why do I have to live by everybody else's rules? If I'm going to die of cancer, I'm going to take some stuff with me. And I made up my mind. So I bought this beautiful little treasure chest, 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high probably Romanesque, 11th or 12th century. Maybe it held a Bible or a book of days, but it was wonderful. Had a great patina on it. As for the treasure itself, Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts. There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, There are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, 
placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that, that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds, uh, pre-Columbian wakas, uh, 2,000-year-old bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And it, I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing. Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska. And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hit it and I was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> but, I, but, but I had a whole card. I told myself, if I, if I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this, this is perfect. Why, why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. <laughs> if you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck, <laughs> a wife and 12 kids who lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in your back of your truck and go look for the treasure and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I, just this last week, passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Finn, we're not gonna find the chest, we know that, but I wanna thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the tree. Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forest Fen. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle, a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up here creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold.
The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forrest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance. If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> you, you read in, in these different magazines, they ask a question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such a... Uh, uh, idiot uh, thing to say, I think. Well, I do the same thing over again. We, nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. American stories, and now we continue our series, Better Health at Lower Cost. And we've talked about blue zones. There are five regions in the world characterized by Dan Buettner in his book as places that include the following in their lifestyle, moderate to regular physical activity, life purpose, stress reduction, moderate caloric intake, plant-based diet, moderate alcohol intake, engagement in spirituality or religion, engagement in family life, and engagement in social life. But if these are the types of things people in the blue zones are doing, who are the actual people that live in these types of places? Today, we introduce you to two of the younger members of their community in Loma Linda, California, Zella and David Floor. I was born in New Mexico in 1930, in the beginning of the Great Depression. My parents were relatively poor, so then I ended up going to Linwood Academy, which is an Adventist church school, and a, a PUC, Pacific Union College, which is a, an Adventist college in Northern California. And then I came here to Loma Linda to take the nurses course, and I graduated in 1953. So I'm an old timer around Loma Linda. From an early age, probably, I, I wanted to be in forestry work. Ended up at Humboldt State University and got a degree in forest management, Bachelor of Science. And from there, went to work for the United States Forest Service. 38 years later, I retired. Well, I, I was working on the San Bernardino National Forest, these mountains right over here. Yeah, I'd worked on there for 18 years, actually, all, all in different positions. And uh, 
I'd just gone through a divorce and uh, needed to start branching out a little bit after a couple years. And my first wife and I were hardened square dancers. Anyway, I was working following my divorce, and, and I had at that time two nearly grown girls. One of them was at PUC, and the other one was at Monterey Bay Academy. I needed to get myself in gear and, and earn some money to keep those kids in school. And so I, I, I left Salt Lake City, came here to Loma Linda to my alma mater, and got a job in the medical center. And so, and this was a long time ago, 40 years ago, it was in 76, 77, something like that. Mm -hmm. After a couple of years, I, I, I needed more of a social life. I was 48 years old. That's, it may seem a little old, <laughs> but it, it isn't. It's quite young. And so uh, I, I had some friends who were square dancers, and they said, oh, well, we know a, a caller who is starting a new class, which, of course, took eight or nine months. When we were all through with our class, the, the square dance clubs came around and were inviting us to come to different places. So this square dance met at, in Highland, in, over here in San Bernardino, and they met on Sunday afternoons, which was perfect for me, because I was working a shift in the, in the hospital where I had to get up at 5.30 every morning. So I couldn't go in the evenings, so the afternoon was fine. Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, I think it was, we had our square dance over there. So I met over there, and I think it was the second time we were there, he showed up. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> We were, we were accidentally put in the same square. The, the caller says, find your squares. And we ended up in the same square. And we ended up sitting the next, the next one out, getting acquainted. <laughs> then two years later, we were married. He was not uh, born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist as I was. And so I come from a little bit different background, a different lifestyle, although not that much different. No, I grew up as a Presbyterian. Well, then when I went to college, I kind of got away from church. It was come and go, you know, and now that I met Zella, it's been steady going to church every week for 40 years now. Yeah. The thing of it is the Adventists go to church on, on Saturday, and so uh, we don't do square dancing on that. So, you know, so he, he says, why can't we go square dancing on Friday night or Saturday? Well, I'm busy. Well, well after a month or two, you know, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? On? And I said, well, I, I go to church. What do I have to do to go to church with you? Well, you come pick me up and dress Be decently behave and behave yourself <laughs> and, and then you can take me to church. And we were married at the, uh, at the age of, we were both around, close around 50. In the meantime, I had had cancer, breast cancer. In a healthful living person, it happens. About six months after we met, and then we, we, after we were married, we had been married about six months, I had it again. The other breast, it was breast cancer each time. How does a healthy living person who is concentrating on being healthful get such a horrible thing as cancer? It happens. It happens among the best of us. I, I've got friends in here who have had cancer, who have had cancer. That, that's no, uh, healthful living is no indication that you're not going to have things go wrong with you. You know, we have, uh, we have genetic things that happen. Li we're living in a, in, a, in a contaminated world. Uh, we've got inherited gene variants, you know, as, as we learn more about genetics, there, there are variants that, that come along that we inherit. And uh, my mother had breast cancer, my, her, her mother did, her sister did, uh, so there, it's, it's there. Uh, it doesn't happen. I, I was tested to see if I had it in the genetic makeup, and I don't. I don't have it in the genetic makeup. It just happened. 
and that's what things are. But, but I feel that uh, my cancer was 40 years ago, count them, 40 years ago. And I count my survival from the breast cancer and my healthful life now because of the healthful condition I was in from my healthful living. Just because you get unhealthy things like this doesn't mean that it comes from your lifestyle. It, it can or it cannot, but your life, a healthy lifestyle will help you to overcome the problems that we run into. When I was all through, I had chemotherapy for the second time. The first time I did not need any chemotherapy. I asked the doctor who was, who was taking care of me to let me get a, a second opinion from someone just to make sure that we hadn't forgotten something. And he said, I think we'll just send you over to Stanford. Anyway, we went, to, we went over to Stanford and saw this doctor. I can't remember his name now, it doesn't matter because it was a long time ago. He probably has retired 40 years ago. And, uh, and, and he said, everything is fine. You, you look good, you've had good treatment, you've had everything. He said, I have two things to tell you to do. Number one is to keep your weight down. And number two is to keep a positive attitude. Now, I myself broke those two things down. To keep my weight down, what do I need to do? You need to have a healthy diet. You need to exercise. You need to do all these things that go towards making, making you healthy, fresh air, plenty of water. All of these things help to keep your weight down. And the second thing, how do you keep a positive frame of mind? It's your family. This is, the, this is the, your surrounding, your support system. It's your family, it's your church, it's your attitude, your things that you do with your mind, how you keep active. I try to make it a habit to learn something new as I can, I read a lot. Now I'm in my late 80s and there are more people here in their 90s than you could shake a stick at. You know, they're just, we've got a couple here who are just hanging on for their 100th birthday and they're doing fine. Uh, and I plan to be one of them one of these days. Not there yet. Well, I ended up my career in San Francisco at the regional office of the Forest Service. And uh, we, I retired. And we said, well, where are we going to live? You can live anywhere you want in the world. We decided to move here. And so we, we've been looking at retirement communities and settled on this one. And everybody says, why? And I says, it feels like home. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a fun place to live. We go to the Drayson three times a week. We go to a class over there that, uh, that, that caters to us uh, older people. <laughs> but uh, they, they call it chair aerobics. And so they do things that get our heart rate up and, and, and they, we practice on balance and we practice on things that, that are important for older people to keep from falling and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We're very fortunate to be in a place where we have all these things, uh, you know, uh, for us to use. The one thing we appreciate about the Drayson Center is when you're over 80, we have the run of the gymnasium for free. We take advantage of it as much as we can. I go down there and walk the, the outside track. There's an outside track there that, uh, that uh, if you walk it twice, you've walked a mile. And uh, we get down there, it's a, it's a quarter of a mile to walk up here to the gym. It's been a wonderful support to me, and that has been that has been one of the things that has contributed to my good health, I'm, I'm sure. It, it has to be. Uh, I don't have any, any problems like that. So You know, this, this Blue Zone thing, we've, we've talked about, we talk about, a lot about it here. And most, there's nothing magic about Loma Linda. Everybody's come from someplace else that lives here. 
I mean, they come from Japan and all over the world. They come here and they live here where we are. And so the blue zone is all over. It's a lifestyle. And of course, I will have to say that we're not perfect in following the blue zone recommendations. You know, but all of us, we, 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 you know, we fall down occasionally. We, we eat too much ice cream, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, but generally, we're, we, we try to live as healthy and close to our, uh, to our lifestyle as we can. Our healthy diet, our use of water, our exercise, our sleep, our rest, uh, our, our sense of community, our family, and our faith and trust in God. Those are the things that make the Blue Zone. And you've been listening to Zella and David Floor, and great job on that, Robbie, who went out to Loma Linda to study and to look at and learn from these remarkable people who have turned Loma Linda into a blue zone. Again, only five in the world. One happens to be right here in the United States. And as well as Ella said, you can trip over 90-year-olds here. And the 90-year-olds are out there walking, more than most 40 or 50-year-olds probably, each and every day. This is a part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series brought to us by the great people at the Stetson Family Office. Zella and David Floor's story, in the end, Loma Linda's story, and we're going to continue with more from this remarkable piece of earth in California, here on Our American Stories.